All right, welcome to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm Chris Parkinson. We're here at HeartCast Media with producer Molly in downtown DC. My guest today is Hawa. He's an artist, author, educator, yoga instructor, community organizer, and nonprofit leader. He has dedicated his life to teaching about solutions to violence and ways to peace and has traveled to over 42 countries to facilitate interactive workshops, host dialogues, perform poetry, teach yoga, and speak with those interested in creating a caring, sustainable, and equitable world. He is a certified yoga instructor who was trained and certified in Sivananda Yoga at the Yoga Vidya. You want to give that to me, Hawa, the rest of that? Gurukul. There we go. A world-renowned teacher training college in India. He holds a cert- second certification in the Jivamukti Yoga School and also holds a certificate from the Center for Mind, Body Medicine, and Trauma Relief and Healing. He spent years also learning from other yoga traditions, including studying Ashtanga Yoga with Patabi Joyce in Mysore, Vinyasa Flow, Kundalini, and Iyengar Yoga Styles. He maintains a Vipassana meditation practice and practices Kung Fu, specifically training in Shaolin. Bagwazang. There we go. And Tai Chi styles. In 2000, Hawa co-founded One Common Unity, a nonprofit that supports a movement for peace, education, and the building of a nonviolent culture through music and art. Over the past 18 years, OCU has worked with over 25,000 youth and families from around the nation. How you doing, Hawa? Feeling pretty good. That's awesome, Feeling man. pretty good. How you doing? Good. Uh, for those of you who uh, who want to learn more about Hawa, uh, his website is uh, hawa.us, and uh, you can find out more about him and um, all the really outstanding work that he's doing uh, around the country and the DC community. Um, let's start, I guess, with uh, your, let's start at the beginning. Um, this, is why, this is one of the, class, the questions I commonly ask my guests. Do you, <laughs> do you remember your first <laughs> yoga class? The beginning, wow. Your first ever. I was just feeling my toes in the beginning, (laughs) incubating in the womb, getting warm. I was probably in Shavasana, lying in a pool of primordial jelly, fluid substance. Um, The beginning. How far back do you want to go for the beginning? You want to go to childhood? Do you want to go to when I started teaching? Do you want to go to when yoga first got introduced into my life? Yeah, let's start with that. All right. So... When I was when I was young, I, I spent a lot of summers in India. Mumbai was my second home, so I had I had uh, my mom and uh, her side of the family, my dad and extended family out living in Mumbai. Um, my dad's brother, uh, my uncle, is a Swami in India, so a Swami is is considered a um spiritual teacher mm-hmm. spiritual master um somebody that has attained heights of achievement in in practice to teach others and so i was able to spend time around him as a kid uh absorbing kind of through osmosis well what was that like was that like was that like was it was he like Uncle Joe or was he like the Swami? I mean, yeah, I wasn't allowed to call him Uncle because uh, <laughs> once you once you take the 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 renunciation vows, you no longer our you family, know right? you no longer our family. Yeah. So your well, your family is the universal family. Everybody's your family, but you cut ties. So my dad no longer called him brother, and I couldn't call him Uncle. Uh, in fact, you know when my uncle became a Swami, he he um. He didn't attend like any family gatherings, no wedding ceremonies from there on forward, no funerals. Like my grandmother died in India and uh, 
my uncle, my Swami uncle, was in Mumbai when she passed. I was there, and he didn't even come to his own mother's funeral. Uh, you know, because doing so would have made the optics of it would have been, well, you are not supposed to be attached to even the death of your mother. So right. why would you go to her funeral? So that's pretty intense. You know, he didn't show up to his mother's funeral. And I, you know, outside of um, being exposed to the culture and the history and the philosophy of yoga, since I was a, a baby, my mom is a bhakti yogini, a bhakti um Yogi is one that really follows the path of devotion mm-hmm. and one that uses mantra and, and chanting and kirtan and arti to really surrender all actions to to that force beyond the self. So I you know, since I was a baby, I had Hanuman on my you know, on my walls and Durgama, the, the six armed goddess sitting on the tiger and Ganeshji, the elephant right. god, and I mean, these deities were the were the deities I grew up with. You know, when I was a kid, I heard the stories of Krishna and and Shiva, and I mean, this was this was a part of my childhood. That's amazing. So, I think you know, being exposed to that as a kid was a distinct advantage to those mm-hmm. that are being exposed to yoga in their twenties and just kind of learning about Hinduism and kind of the way Hinduism has co-evolved with yoga, which is how I like to uh, describe it to others that are learning about the traditions. Um, And then I didn't really, you know, outside of being exposed to all the the chanting and the bhakti and the jhana yoga, which is, I I would call my uncle, uh, I'd call him a jhana yogi, which Mm -hmm. is the yoga of the intellect. Um, You know, he's one that, that pursues enlightenment and self-realization through through in- inquiry and intellectual study and books and so so that's been something that I've been with um asana came to me around my early 20s I think I was like 20 or 21 when I did my first asana class in the US in growing up were you was there, was any of your family involved in asana practice at all or was it or was it purely the you know what, what many would be, would consider like the traditional yoga, which is the bhakti yoga, the yana yoga, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I saw it, and uh, there was a lot more pranayama and meditation happening, dhyan happening within even family routines. Um, a lot of meditation and definitely like work with, with deep breathing and pranayama, but asana was not, it wasn't as widespread um, as you've acutely Described. I mean, in India, asana always took a backseat to the other forms of yogic expression. Mm-hmm. So I saw it, but I wasn't doing sun salutations in India. Right, right. Yeah. And was it mostly, um, was it mostly still like for aesthetics in India, for people who are like were true renunciates who were sort of like, you know, like the um, the sadhus that we see the pictures of? Is, is it, was it mainly, mainly that or was there actually, did you see a lot of like, um, places teaching the asana styles outside of places like Mysore, where there's that tradition that from the early night, the early 20th century. Yeah, it's a great question. It was around for sure, and definitely like on TV, on like Indian television, there were gurus teaching asana, and you know, um, you you could find it. It has always traditionally been more of a of a one on one relationship. 
So this idea of yoga being taught in classrooms with 30 people, 40 people, 50 people at a time, that's, mm -hmm. that's a very new um, development in the evolution of yoga, right? So traditionally, it's always been like a one-on-one, one-on-two -on -one, relationship where you spend time with the teacher and you spend years and years with the teacher. Uh, you don't go from teacher to teacher every night. and Yeah, this isn't 200 hours with one teacher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and even 200 hours with one teacher is not 200 hours with one teacher because there's multiple other teachers that come in and do guest modules and mm -hmm. somebody does your pranayama, somebody else does your assisting, somebody else does your chakras, you know. <laughs> That's at least how I've seen a lot of mm -hmm. teacher trainings in the U.S. kind of operating, which is cool, but it's different than than how it used to be. Um and so being exposed to asana in the U.S. was a chance to kind of kind of really get my feet wet with, with where it was evolving to. Mm -hmm. And that happened in my early 20s. I think I was 20 or 21 when I went to my first. It was my friend, too, is my buddy. And, you know, mm -hmm. he was trying to get me to come to yoga. And I was like, I ain't going to no asana class. I was playing soccer and I was lifting weights. And yeah, it's like, that's not for me, you know. That's cool. Do you remember the class? Do you still remember the class? I do. I do. I remember it. it was at Results Gym. Really? On U Street. Really? I don't know if Results is still there, but that's... No, it's Vita now. That's where Vita. it's the same space. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So it's the, uh, yeah, that space back in probably the year 99, mm -hmm. 2000. That's cool. Yeah. So what was it? Was it just like you know, sun salutations, power yoga class, or was it like... It was kind of a power yoga class. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was a tough vinyasa kind of power class. Mm -hmm. And did you and did you get the bug right away, or was that something you were like, "Oh, that's nice. I'm going to go back to playing soccer now." So, I got the bug kind of right away. Um, I guess, like, actually, the the progression of it was I I recognized in that class that I really couldn't. I thought I was very strong before even going to the class because I'd been playing soccer my whole life and been very active. Um, when in the class, I realized I couldn't do more than half of what was being asked. And mm -hmm. I was I was kind of curiously baffled. <laughs> I was like, this is really hard, um, which I appreciate. I appreciate a challenge. That's kind of been my life. And the way my mind works is if I can't figure something out, I typically just spend time on it till I can figure it out. And mm -hmm. so um, I ended up going and hanging out with my buddy a few times and, you know, realized while, while practicing out in the park that, I still couldn't do, you know, half of what he was doing. And so I just continued to uh, to work at it. And I, I'd often wake up more sore a day or two later than I'd been from anything I'd from ever done in my too. life. Yeah. And I'm used to like double sessions, playing soccer and plyometrics. And I mean, I'd been sore before, but it was a different mm -hmm. kind of soreness. So when you started combining that with some of the the mental, emotional benefit, when I started really really getting the chance to merge that it, it it really like once once that happened there was no going back that's so cool yeah i was jumping higher on the basketball court i was running further i mean everything was just isn't that amazing how that works yeah people don't think a lot of people who are athletes they just they, they think this yoga stuff is just like it's a bunch of stretching and they don't realize that like the isometric holds that you do when, you, when you're practicing yoga when you're doing the asana like really helps develop stability in your joints which makes your explosive ability on like the court or on the swimming pool or whatever that much stronger i mean it really does like create tensile strength yeah, yeah. um the way i like to say it is sort of like people who 
people who lift weights, like you can become like iron lifting like weights, but to become steel, you need to like have that like range of motion and flexibility that yoga gives you. Plus you have that iron, you know, so you make it mm-hmm. into this like really, you make it into this like flexible yet strong, you know, body. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, what doesn't bend breaks. That's right. Um, so, so you started the asana practice and then you were like, okay, I'm going to just teach this stuff or how did you, how did you go about finding a, a place to learn and kind of what did you do to, to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I kept, you know, I kept, uh, kept learning. I started going to classes regularly. Um, and then I went and traveled back to India and I pursued a teacher training program in India. Um, I did a full immersion. I moved up into an ashram in the North. I, I moved into, uh, an ashram in the Himalayas, spent almost a year and a half studying wow. Sanskrit and living with, with monks and brahmacharis and the Tell foot, us about foothills that, of the Himalayas. That it sounds incredible. Like, yeah. That's like my dream, you know? Yeah, no. It, <laughs> it was, totally is like, I don't know for a lot of people listening whether or not there is their dream, but for me, that's <laughs> like, that's, that's it right there, man. Yeah. Yeah. Time stops. Um, I've had multiple, multiple experiences now where I've been able to unplug from uh, the real world in some ways and enter a different real world, <laughs> I guess you could say, um, you know, that year, year and a half, it felt like a thousand years had passed. Um, you know, the amount of unraveling, the amount of, um, reconfiguring of my mind and my body, having nothing else to do, but wake up every day and practice and go into sadhana, uh, that, that time and that focus, it's, it's, it's nothing you could do in like a kind of like every weekend thing, or mm-hmm. I'm going to do class three days a week and hope to progress, you know, you know, class three days a week as you hopefully can maintain where you are. You know, the real, when, when I got the real, the real shifts in my body and the real shifts in my meditation practice took place when I was in deep immersion, when I was like in a monastery or when I was on like a 10 day Vipassana retreat, um, which I've done like five or six retreats now in the Vipassana style. Um, and that's, that's really when, when everything begins to, um, to change and shift. And it's, it, it, for me in my practice, I can't speak for others, but for me, it was two, three hours in the morning studying all day, mm-hmm. two, three more hours in the, in the evening or the afternoon. I'm talking about five or six hours of asana a day, yeah. right? Like I'm talking about, reading and writing and going to bed thinking about you know philosophy and 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 these ideas these big ideas that it's hard it's hard to get into that space when you're in the city and i don't want to discourage people that are in the city i mean we have to start somewhere Mm -hmm. um but for me i think the reason i've been able to to be as steeped in my practice as i am is because i've i've been able to to really get out and get away Mm -hmm. um I went to China back in 2011 or 2012. I stayed in a Shaolin monastery for about a month and a half. It was the same experience. I was with these Shaolin monks living in this monastery in China. And for these six weeks, it felt like 600 years passed. And by the time I left, I was stronger. I was like just more mentally agile. I was just more balanced. Um, you know, time just kind of stopped. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that kind of progress, that spiritual growth, 
it's happened for me in these kind of incubator moments. Yeah. I'm curious, was there ever a point when you were at the monastery and you were like, maybe I want to stay here? Maybe oh, I, yeah. Maybe I don't want to go back. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating question, Chris. Um, so, and th- this is kind of like my own personal dilemma. I think my lifetime dilemma. I think I've always like walked these two worlds. I think a part of my my being is a, you know, it's an ascetic monk that that is completely introverted and living in a cave and unplugged from the world. And then after like close to a year and a half, a part of me was yearning for and missing the opportunity to engage in the world in a meaningful way. You know, um, ultimately I came back to dive back into my work of service. Um, I didn't feel complete. I didn't feel whole, uh, just being so hyper-focused on my own personal growth. Um, Did it feel a little selfish in a way? It never felt selfish. And I'll tell you why. It didn't feel selfish because I do what I do today because of the time I took to, to, to go through my own process. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, The clarity, the self-realization, the stability that I've cultivated in my own spiritual life was possible because of the time I took. If I didn't take that time, I wouldn't be able to show up in the world the way I do right now. So no, it wasn't, it was never, never felt selfish. There were moments where I felt ready. Right. And when I started to feel really ready, that's when I came back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm really like, and it wasn't that I wasn't engaged in the community work before I left. I was, I was a teacher. Um, I was just giving birth to a nonprofit organization, you know, um, I, I was really involved in community work anyway. I was an activist. I was on the front lines of anti-war demonstrations and organizing prison industrial complex marches in DC. So I was, I was really active, but at that time in my life, I was kind of activated by animosity and anger. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, um, that, that, that righteousness yeah. that, that so often turns into like bitterness and yeah, exactly. Bitterness is a good way to say it. I mean, I was angry at the system. I was young. I was in my early twenties, right? Just out of college. Um, feeling really frustrated with the systems of the world with like racism and oppression and violence. Um, and so the time I took away was, was really critical because it moved, it shifted me from this reactive sort of bitter uh, reaction to what was happening in the world to coming back to lead with love, right? to lead with compassion, you know, to lead with kindness. What does that look like? Um, and, and how does that change my life as an activist, as a, as a teacher, um, as a community organizer? Mm-hmm. So, so those are the things that I was, I was fortunate to, to unravel during yeah. my time away. There's a, there's a big difference. I, I like telling people, um, between, because anger is a great motivator, right? It, it motivates people to do lots of things. Um, but I always find that if you're motivated by things like anger and bitterness and resentment, that even if you get your way, it never really turns out the way you want it, right? That reactiveness causes a blindness in you that prevents you from actually making the change you want to see. Whereas when you come from a place of like gratitude or love or forgiveness, that 
Um, it's that old, it's that old karma yoga saying, right? That you have the right to work, but not the fruits thereof. Yeah. Right. So if you're coming from that place and you're doing good work because it's good to do the work, not because you want to see a certain result, you're much more likely to be graced with a result that, that, that works out. Right. Yeah. Um, so many times I see people so angry and I'm like, your anger itself is prohibiting the change, mm-hmm. right? It's the anger. It's not, it's not the racism. It's not the violence. It's not any of that. It's the anger that causes it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's, it's fantastic. You gotta, everybody's gotta learn that at some point, I think. At some point. Yeah. Um, so tell us, uh, so you basically started working in the community right after you got out of school then. Um, you put together a nonprofit and you started doing things. I did. I actually started, even before I left school, I was, um, uh, I left school my, after my sophomore year in college. I, I dropped out for a year. I wasn't really feeling inspired by, by college. I mean, the learning and what I was learning, um, I just didn't feel challenged by, by, by what was happening. Um, I was also having some, some sort of tough dynamics with, with some friend circles. I, I was definitely involved in, you know, partying hard, <laughs> to say the least. Um, a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, all of it sort of surrounding my first two years of college. Uh, my roommate was a full-blown alcoholic. Um, I was taking care of him and partaking with him every night. I, I just felt like I was kind of lost. and It gets super you know, repetitive, doesn't it? It does. And you know how drugs and alcohol go. At some point, you end up having fall, fallen outs with, with all your people because everybody's wasted all the time, and you can't remember half the things that are going on. And So some of the people that I thought were my best friends were no longer my best friends and, you know, it it just sp- was spiraling and I didn't feel really connected to what was happening in the academic world and I didn't feel connected to what was happening in my social world. And so for a convergence of reasons, I just said, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. I'm going to take, take some time away. And, uh, so I, I left, I left school for a year and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do while taking this time away. And I learned about this AmeriCorps program that they were offering as a, as a new initiative um, that came out of the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were, they were piloting something with Heads Up was the name of the, the organization. Yeah. Um, and they were taking an inaugural class of 10, 10 AmeriCorps members. And I threw my hat in the ring and applied. Uh, I think ultimately I got selected because I was a guy. Um, I think out of the 10 people, there's only three males. Um, the rest were women, and uh, I think the three males that were there were the only three males that applied. <laughs> so, and this is something sadly that um, kind of defines the the space of, of of engaging in like community work and teaching and in the nonprofit world. I think we'll see it more heavily influenced and driven by the energy of women that, than men. Um, and so regardless of whatever reason I got into the program, I got into the program and I moved, uh, I moved into, I moved right actually right behind Malcolm X park Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the hill in a little apartment building. 
I started to go to and travel to uh, to Southeast to Anacostia. Had you been, had you grew up in DC? No, you didn't grow up in. I grew DC. up in uh, New Jersey. That's what I thought. Yeah, I remember that about you. Yeah, yeah, love it. Love New Jersey. Love it, brother. The, con- the continent of <laughs> <laughs> the greatest continent in the world. It is. It is. It's a special place. People that hate don't know. It is. It's great, man. Um, I really do. I, I'm really happy that, I, that that's the place I could say I, I kind of did all my schooling as a kid. And again, as I mentioned, I, I spent summers in India and Mumbai. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came to D.C. for college. You know, that's what brought me to D.C. And next thing I knew, I was in Berry Farms, southeast D.C., five days a week, tutoring third and fourth graders after school. Yeah. And uh, doing work around reading, literacy, math. Uh, built a community garden in the mm-hmm. back there next to the pool. There was like crack needles everywhere. Was, I mean, I'm talking was, about 98. In was that like the first time you've been exposed to stuff like that? At that level, yeah. 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 Berry Farms was, I mean, Berry Farms then was considered one of the murder capitals of the country. You know, D.C. itself. That's why it used to be called the Washington Bullets, you know, the, the basketball team, because there's so many bullets flying all around the city. Um it's real. I mean, I mean, the struggle was real in D.C. And, and for me, I mean, I saw violence in India and, and Mumbai, and, but, and I saw poverty in India, like nothing I've still ever seen in America, even in Berry Farms. Um, no running water, you know, electricity for two hours a day, uh, no refrigerators, like, you know, just like extreme poverty. Um, poverty that I saw extended family trapped in, but also poverty on the streets when I would walk out the door. Um, but then going to Berry Farms and being in Southeast DC, it was a different, a different kind of poverty and violence. Uh, a real, real wake up call for me. Um, never, never, you know, to that, that point in my life experienced that kind of violence. Um, and, and what I was being charged to do, I couldn't do. I couldn't tutor math or English I was spending all my time breaking up fights, right. you know? So I, I, that year was really, was really transformative in my, in my life. Um, it really, really woke me up to, to one of my passions, which is to teach. I mm-hmm. love teaching. Yeah. Um, and so I, I ultimately went back to school. I finished and, uh, graduated from college and started a nonprofit organization and, you know, got a job as the director of peaceable schools in DC's that, largest public high school. That's cool when you get that um, when you get that direction set, and you're like, like it comes into clarity, right? That professional direction. You're like, this is what I have to do, um, and I'm gonna make it happen, right? Because I think um, a lot of people. Or at least I went through my life not finding a direction for my professional life when I found yoga and I found what it did for me. Um, I knew I wanted to teach it uh, for a living. I knew I wanted to be around yoga every every day, every moment of my life. Yeah. Uh, and it became so clear to me that I wanted to do this, that when I do things, people people frequently say like, oh, you know, you put so much effort into it and it was incredibly hard. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, I have to do this. Like, this isn't, like, and it's not an option like I'm doing this. Um, so to have that kind of clarity is kind of, it's powerful, right? I mean, it, it drives you, yeah. you know, there's no, there's, there's no doubt. Like, you know, you're just, you're going to do it. 
Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, and I, I was coming up at a time in my life where I, mean, I had options. Like I, I knew how to pass tests, right? Like I, I, I could be book smart and I was book smart if I wanted to be. Um, I, I really had a conscious, made a conscious decision at a young age that making money was not important to me. You know what I mean? Like Me too, yeah. I knew. I and, do, actually. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing to have that revelation because I would say that we're probably part of a minority of, of people that, you know, that are able to think like, yeah, of course you want, we want our basic needs met. We want to have some expendable income so we can like live a life we want to, but my life is not going to be driven by having to like accumulate as much money as I can into a bank account. Um, I want my life to be driven by purpose. And yeah. I feel like those of us that can have that realization, whether that's in our forties or sixties or in our twenties, that that drastically changes how we wake up every day. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it definitely does. And whether that changes, it changes whether or not we sleep at night too. Yeah. Um, so you had, so at this point you, you had the yoga teacher training done. Did you ever set out on a course where you were like, okay, I'm going to do sort of the standard yoga teacher course, which is I'm going to pick up 10 classes a week and I'm going to teach at these studios and I'm going to run around doing this. Or were you just so immersed in the in your own nonprofit that you really didn't have time for that? Like kind of take us through like your, your beginnings is teaching the asana practice here in DC. That's a great question. Um, so one common unity, which is the nonprofit that I co-founded with some friends back in the year 2000, for the first 12, 13 years, it was really a passion project. Mm -hmm. um, our operating budget never really surpassed $150,000, $180,000, which means that we didn't have employees on salary. You know, we were doing a lot of great work throughout the city and throughout the country, but we were predominantly volunteer driven. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't how I could pay my bills. Mm -hmm. And so around that time, I also had a yoga teacher certificate at this point. I was, you know, certified to teach yoga and I found myself, um, doing multiple different things in the world that were passionate. that I was also passionate about to, to make the ends meet. And one of them was teaching yoga. The other was 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 writing books and, and and getting on a speaking circuit, and I love doing like motivational speaking with like with youth groups and different conferences around the country. Um, I started writing and I wrote a book, um, and then I was also I moved to being part time as a public school teacher, as as a, as a high school teacher in D.C., uh, which was another way I was getting some residual income. Uh, teaching alternatives to violence, which is a social studies elective mm -hmm. in D.C. So all this was happening. I, I'm like, I've got my hands in all these pots. I've been very entrepreneurial my whole life, I guess you could say, right? I would say that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at that, at one point in my life, for sure, I was teaching regularly in studios. I mean, I was teaching at, you know, sports and sport, sports and health clubs around the city when, when that was a thing. I was teaching five or six classes a week at Flow Yoga Center, at least. Um, mm -hmm. There's a couple other studios I was teaching at. I had a full teaching load in addition to working on One Common Unity, in addition to teaching at a public school, in addition to like traveling and, you know, yeah. speaking. So I was just like following like this young zest, um, nomadic, like pave your own way lifestyle. And I was loving it. Um, ultimately, Chris, I did leave 
the yoga studio teaching world. Yeah. Um, it was a conscious decision, actually. I, I'd, I'd had regular classes in yoga studios up until the end of 2011. So, so for how many years were you going for, pretty much? Probably about like nine. Nine years straight. Nine years teaching. Like every week, pretty much. Pretty much, week. yeah. yeah. I, was, well, I was out there, yeah, yeah, teaching. That's what I was doing, in addition to everything else. Um, but, you know, and, and there was moments where I was flirting with having to pull back, and I would, like, change my schedule and teach less, and, you know, sometimes I was teaching more. You know, you drop classes, you pick classes up. Mm-hmm. There's there phases, but ultimately, at the end of 2011, I... I really realized a couple things. One was I I was getting burnt out. Yeah. I was doing way too much. You know, one common unity was growing and I was spending like more of my days working on the organization and working in schools. And that was taking all my time. And then in the evenings I was going to teach classes. And by the time it was all done, I was getting home at 10 at night and I had to wake up the next morning and do it again. And I think I was getting tired of not having time for myself. Um, two was I was getting really discouraged by the lack of diversity in the yoga studios where I was teaching. Yeah. Um, Talk about that for a moment. Yeah. If you'd like. I mean. No, I'm happy to. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's the number one reason why I left the studio world. Um, you know, my work is, is with the people. I'm, I'm a community organizer. Um, I've been teaching in youth prisons and working in schools mm-hmm. and where, where, um, often people without access are the people I really love to provide this opportunity and experience to. And I just kind of felt after so much time, I just felt like the people I was working with day in and day out, and this could be my own misperception, but I feel like they didn't need me as, mm-hmm. as like I was just another one of like 50 other teachers they could go to and go get a stretch on and go sweat. And I had to make a decision. Like, am I going to be like an aerobics exercise teacher? Because that's what people wanted from me. They wanted me to like teach a hard vinyasa class. I was going to get them all sweaty and feeling good inside. And the question was like, do I want to just keep asking people to touch their toes all day long? Or do I want to ask people to touch their minds? And what does that look like? You know? And as an educator, like I love facilitating dialogue. I love the creativity of being in a space and and leading a process where we were like talking about race or class and, you know, implicit bias, uh, training and conflict resolution and nonviolence and, you know, all the other pieces to what it means to like, to consider the whole being and the personality of how we interact in the world. And I just didn't feel like I was getting the time in a yoga class, a asana class, right. let's call it what it is. It's an asana class. It's not a yoga class. I mean, we should be renaming all classes around the country and calling them asana classes. Um, and I wasn't getting the time in an asana class to like explore all these other pieces that were important to me. Um, and I also just found that the clientele was was really the same. You know, um, there's a real lack of diversity in, in the yoga room, predominantly all women, um, you know, predominantly all white and it wasn't diverse. You, and then know, you would it, like, you would leave that and then you would go to your teaching gig or you would go to your go to my nonprofit school, yeah. and it would be completely the opposite. Completely almost. the opposite. Yeah. It must've been pretty jarring to sometimes have days like that or. Yeah. Well, it makes you think, it makes you wonder. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, that I don't, and I don't want to provide or be able to support those spaces. I do, but I had to just make a real decision, like because of who I am yeah, and because of like the experiences I've had as a kid and because of the color of my own skin, like I had, I have this unique opportunity to work 
you know, in spaces and be relevant, mm -hmm. you know? And so I wanted to, um, I wanted to activate that. You know? Well, I mean, and, and, and I don't want to go too far, you know, into, well, maybe we do, I don't know, but you know, when I work in Southeast, um, and it's a fast gentrifying neighborhood, um, but at my yoga studio, it, 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 there's three yoga studios in all of Southeast. There's like three yoga studios, like on one block in 14th street. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it, this is also, this is a question of access. Yeah. You know, where can people go to do yoga? Um, yeah. that is, that is racial in a lot of ways. It is. Um, you have to have, you have to be able to pay a pretty hefty fee to be a member at a yoga studio. And yeah. so, I mean, the question just became like, and so, and I still, I still love being in those spaces and I teach in those spaces and I sub and I do workshops and I lead TT programs mm -hmm. and it's great. Um, but, but my energy is really predominantly spent on trying to create access for populations that don't have access. Yeah. Have you done, um, I, I had a friend, uh, I have a friend who, um, she, she used to teach a weekly yoga class at, um, at, uh, a prison. Um, have you ever done anything like that? Taught meditation or yoga classes um, like that? Yeah. 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 Oak Hill back before it was when it was called Oak Hill Juvenile mm -hmm. Detention Center. Um, I used to work there and, and do, did a whole series of yoga classes and I didn't even call it yoga. I'd call it, we, we, we call it Kung Fu. Yeah. Um, I love it. Just because, I mean, for multiple reasons, we, we bring, I bring it out with the martial arts and of course we'd be doing yoga too, but an asana, but you know, by not calling it yoga, I was able to like sidestep the stereotype right. that young males of color have that yoga is not for them, you know, cause all we ever see on the magazine covers is yeah, the super bendy white woman. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and they don't. So if I was to go in there be like, I'm teaching yoga, they would have already been like, nah, I ain't doing that shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but instead, what was the response? Oh, they loved it. it. They love loved it. it. We, we, we talk about being Jedis and, you know, we'd be moving with the force and, yeah. you know, like just, oh, incredible. You know, doing Tai Chi hands and, and feeling the pulsing between your hands and the heat and the fingertips. And I think everybody's craving silence, Chris. Yeah. You know, in a deep way. I think, I think our world is, we're moving so fast. We're so plugged in all the time. Mm -hmm. And when we get a taste of silence, we begin to crave it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, that's what I felt happening in, in, in those spaces. And we see happening all the time in our schools where we're working, where meditation is, is a part of the curriculum, you know? It's a part of what we provide to, to students and teachers. So go, go into that for a second. So, is that, so the meditation is actually a part of what you guys provide the schools, school system with? Yeah, mindfulness. That's so cool. Uh, meditation, because, mindfulness is, is a part of our curriculum, yeah. Because one of the things I, I frequently tell my classes is that you have an education, you start from a very young age, at least in Western society, you start with, you know, you get your mathematics, you get your science, you get your reading, your writing. Um, you can major in just about anything you could possibly imagine at a college. But there's no class in middle school called compassion. Right. And there's no class in high school called forgiveness and you can't major right in faith mm -hmm. i mean you can't all right religion you could i guess but you can't major in like love yeah do you know like these are things that 
for better or worse, our society has decided that we need to learn on our own, mm-hmm. or we need the church to do it for us, or we need you know we need to learn it from someplace else than our standard state. Uh, endorsed curriculum. Um, And so I find it amazing that you're going to bring meditation to schools, which I think if we had every, you know, every person or every student in school from the age of, you know, from fourth grade on have a half hour of meditation every day, like what that could do to our society. Yeah. Like what could be possible then? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Great things. Great things. I mean, I just think it would be. The research even shows it, right? I mean, we've done, they've done a lot of evidence-based research on schools that have adopted meditation as a part of the daily routine. Um, and the results are, are amazing. They're jaw dropping how much shift happens, uh, how much academic improvement takes place, behavioral, positive behavioral changes take place, a reduction in suspensions and detention. Um, damn, I mean, you're exactly right. That's what we're missing. It's so it's so awesome. What else? What else do you? Uh, what else do you guys do? But let to, me ask before I even yeah, get there. Yeah, let me sorry. ask. Let me ask you something. Like th- this is something that's that's interesting because there's there's a there's a counter argument to that, yeah. right? And you mentioned it briefly, and, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. There's a counter argument that says that's not the place of a school to teach kindness, to to teach compassion. Uh, a school shouldn't be teaching values or you know cooperation to kids. That's the the role of of the home or the family. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot of people that fall on that side of the fence. There was, there was a big movement back in the eighties around character education in schools and it was shut down for those reasons. Um, and it it could have happened a long time ago where, where, uh, empathy, education, conflict resolution, it could have been a part of curriculum a long time ago and it wasn't. Right. So what do you think about that? What, What do you say to those naysayers? So I would, I guess I would start by, um, I would start by saying that if you're teaching a person, if you're teaching um, a person how to think rather than what to think, that is the job of education. Uh, And I think yoga, especially the yoga, not the asana, the yoga has a lot to say about how we think, uh, which is very different than what to think. Um, It's one of the things I enjoy about the the religions from India, right? We call it Hinduism, right? That's our mm-hmm. big label on it, right? Um, but a lot of the texts from that um, are basically guides to how to frame your thinking. And it's not so much dogma that we get from the religions in the West where it is, you must do this, you must do that, you must do this. Like, in other words, there's, there's certainly certainly lots of parts of yoga that will tell you exactly how to live your life. Uh, but from my point of view, one of the great lessons that yoga can teach us is it doesn't matter what you think as long as you know exactly what it is that you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And that if we're teaching in schools students that um, there is nothing wrong with you, we don't want to change you. What we want you to be able to do is um, recognize what it is that you're doing. That to me is important. And I think the argument is basically we shouldn't be, I think the argument breaks down for the naysayers in along the lines of the following. Um, 
they're coming at it from the point of view that we're trying to tell people how to live their lives. And I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to tell people, um, to show people how to, how to think instead of what to think. Yeah. That's kind of the long winded answer. No, I love it. Um, and that I think like love and compassion and faith, these are just as important as learning to do your math so you can pay your taxes. Right. Like in our society, like we value, um, people who make money because then they pay taxes and then we can like have all these like tanks and guns and shit. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, Mm -hmm. but like, why don't we put the same premium on love and compassion and forgiveness? Yeah. And we ought to, right? Because then with love and compassion and forgiveness, we don't need the fucking tanks. Right. (laughs) Right. There you go. So, you go. Um, I don't know. I guess, um, that would, that's, I guess my response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I really, I really get a burr up my ass when people start telling me like that yoga is all about like learning how to be like a Hindu or some sort of like, you know, practice like that's, that's totally religious in nature. And while there's certainly a lot of yoga that, that is, I mean, they're interchangeable. Like you mentioned at the beginning, you can't yeah. separate yoga from the, the religions of India. Right. Um, yoga is so vast and so old. Yeah. We could not possibly say stupid things like yoga is just about learning how to be a Hindu, right? right. You know, right. It, it's just, it, it's just not there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, and yoga predates yeah. all of that. And, and I think, I think what's really important to remember, uh, is that, so yoga is a universal science and a universal, um, a universal th- understanding of interconnectedness. Right. And, um, when we, when we start to confuse yoga with Hinduism, we've, we've lost the ability to see how yoga transcends religion, um, which it does, you know, it absolutely does. And, you know, one of the biggest anchors to any good yogi or yogini is a, is a, is a, is a curious mind, a questioning mind, a self-critical mind, um, you know, we have to be able to question the answers. We have to not accept reality as we see it um, or hear it or have been told it is. Um, the only truth is the truth that we can come to through our own experience, right? Experiential truth. And so that's the mind that's being cultivated through a yoga practice. Um, there is no dogma. There is no, you have to do it this way or this way or this way. No, it's you should practice Um in whichever way you feel is most aligned with what you need right now. And that's why to come to a space of yoga, you could be of any religion. You could be of any faith. You could be Christian, Muslim, Jew. Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, yoga is, is accessible to anyone regardless of their faith. Um, and that's what's really powerful about the practice. It's, it's a practice to self-realization. Um, and there's many paths up the mountain. Yeah. You know? And I think this is one of the things that people, especially when we deal with, with school curriculum, and I mean, you're obviously much more of an expert on this than I am. I only see it from the outside. But we, we love, we love right and wrong so much, like in the West. Um, and it's just, that's simply in a lot of times, in a lot of spaces, not the way the world works. Like there are people that have experiences yeah. And how do we relate to those experiences to each other? And we kind of got to get out of this habit of saying like, this is right and this is wrong. And there's, this is one path and there's a, that's, there's no other way. 
it's just a it's just a very limited way of seeing the world. Yeah, well, and and that's why we are in the situation we're in right now throughout the country. The polarization is a result of that black and white thinking, right? We've we've re- we've reduced ourselves into these red camps and blue camps, or black camps and white camps, and we've 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 become so dichotomous in our thinking. We have neglected to see the colors in between and the shades of gray and the browns and, and the blues and the purples. And, you know, without, um, without being able to, to perceive all of the various perspectives, um, we fall into this trap of, of, um, of, of fighting each other, you mm-hmm. know, across and creating more division and separation. And I think part of, what makes yoga so beautiful, it's about dissolving separation, right? Like when we get into the anchor yeah. of what yoga is, it's about it's about seeing that there really is fundamentally no difference between you and me. We are the same being, Yeah. you know? Like at some point, we will all merge back into, if, you're, if you subscribe to biology and science, we'll merge back into matter, Right. You know, that's going to be recycled into soil and leaves of trees and ocean water. And at some point, you know, we we are um, we're not separate. Yeah. You know, there's really no distinction. Yeah. Maya. Right. It's all Maya. Yeah. Like that, that illusion that we're separate. Yeah. Right? And it's that we're kind of living in the society. It's a microcosm of that um, kind of kind of old yoga concept that if you let it, your mind basically is a seesaw between things you desire and things you want to avoid and you can spend all day going back and forth on that seesaw yep right and you miss everything yeah right because all you're being dead is you're just being led by your desires and your 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 wanting things and not wanting things exactly yeah so in so in so many ways yoga is more relevant is is just as if not more relevant today than ever absolutely you know and and part of what and why we need to introduce empathy, education, conflict resolution, the the um, the the education around compassion um, that's missing, peace education from our schools is because the challenge right now in front of us as a nation, it, it requires mm-hmm. us to take a step back to to cultivate the skills of listening to other people's perspectives. Uh, being willing to engage in dialogue uh, and make sure it's not like so violent and defensive all the time. You know, we need to evolve. Uh, unfortunately, we've devolved. It feels like yeah, that skill alone. Ten years. That skill alone, being able to listen without becoming defensive. Like how? Like that couldn't be more special, yeah. right? Being able to actually listen to a person without having a response. And just hearing them. Yeah, yeah. It's something that the Vipassana practice cultivates. Um, Vipassana meditation is, uh, it's an, it's uh, the, the technique of meditation that was passed down by the Buddha um, over 2,000 years ago. And it was preserved in Burma, in Myanmar, uh, in one of its purest forms. Uh, there's a few lineages that kind of spoke out from it, but... Um, the Vipassana tradition and the Vipassana meditation practice is one that cultivates um, 
our ability to not be reactive to uh, and to listen, right? And so how, do, how that expresses itself in meditation practice, if you're sitting still and you're not moving and you feel the need to move and you feel like you're, you know, you feel an itch on the side of your face and you want to move your hand to itch your face or to scratch your face, um, instead of scratching your face, you watch the itch. What does that feel like? Um, to interrupt the normal response pattern of the mind to react to a feeling or a sensation. And by continually engaging in that process, you begin to deconstruct the mind and you begin to deconstruct the reactive patterns of the mind. And it helps you to slow down. It creates space between your thoughts. It creates this, this real deep reservoir of listening. And through that listening and through that silence, we, we can engage in relationship with others in a way that's much more compassionate. Um, and that's why Vipassana is such a powerful practice. Uh, it's, it's been actually the anchor to my personal practice for over like 15 years now. It's the only thing that I fear on this planet. What do you fear? Vipassana? Have, yeah. you, have you done the course yet? I have not. Yeah. I, I, it's, I, honestly, I, I, well, I fear two things. I, I don't like flying, but I really fear Vipassana. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I, I, I want to take it so badly. And, yeah. it, and it's, it, it sounds silly, but I, I truly am terrorized yeah. by, by thinking about sitting by myself for 10 days yeah. and what will come up for me. Yeah, and it's 10 days of silence, too. Yeah. So it's 10 days of no writing, no reading, ideally no eye contact with others. You, you are being guided through meditation um, for 10 days. It will probably be one of the hardest things you've ever done in your life. Uh, I can attest to that, but it will probably also be one of the most transformational things you've ever done in your life. Yeah. It's one of those things that like, I don't know. I sort of think about it. You know, people always say you're never ready to have a child. <laughs> I know it's nothing like having a child, but like, that's the way it's in my own thought. Like I, I want to be ready to do Vipassana, you know? I yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And same thing. You can't be ready to do Vipassana. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually you're better off going to Vipassana with absolutely no experience in meditation and just going cold. Yeah. Um, that's how I did it the first time I did it. Uh, and I think, I think the more we have that we're going to it with, the more ideas we have of what meditation looks like or feels like, it, it actually, it's a barrier to us just completely surrendering to the technique that's being taught to you. And so I always am just like, look, you can't prepare for this course. You, mm -hmm. you really can't. And you actually will benefit to just show up one morning and jump in and do it. So you're not fighting your expectations. Yeah. 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 Do you have a do you have a daily meditation practice? You meditate every day. You try. I, I do. I mean, I have a daily practice. Um, what does know, that look like? Is it is it physical? Is it psychological? Is it devotional? Is it? It's physical. Um, it's it involves breath. It, it's 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 mental as well. It, it mm -hmm. involves meditation. Um, I mean, I typically wake up in the morning and and hit my mat. Um, and if I don't hit my mat, I I go practice my forms and practice Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. uh, ideally, I have like an hour in the morning. If I don't, I, I typically will not leave my, my apartment unless I get like 10 or 15 minutes of something in. Yeah, I, I like to create circulation in my body, um, especially after like sleeping all night. I like to be able to get my forehead down to my shins. Like that's when I know, okay, I'm warm enough to like go have breakfast. 
uh, <laughs> hop on my hands, you know, jump into a couple of handstands. You don't got to be too warm for that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I start every day with some movement. Um, I have a sitting practice. practice been practicing Vipassana, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, for a long time. Um, I will vary between 20-minute and one-hour-long sits, depending on the day and depending on the time I have in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a pranayama practice that I integrate also. So typically, I love to get two sessions in a day, one in the morning and one later in the day, in the afternoon. But I probably average between an hour to two hours of practice a day. That's cool. Um, we did uh, we did some pranayama in your class the other night. We did. We a little bit, yeah, a little yeah. in the beginning, yeah. Tell us a little about that. You like, you, you're obviously a big fan. Oh, I am, yeah. I mean, I think the, the breath is the bridge. Um, and so... And I think especially since in my, the way I view yoga is that asana is, is sort of that training to move us to meditation. Um, and pranayama is kind of that in-between ladder. So pranayama is, is great preparation for meditation. And it's also amazing what we can do physically in our bodies when we're aware of our breathing. So yeah, I'm a big fan. Love, love that. That's, it's important. Did you learn most of that? Where did you learn most of that? The deeper pranayama work I've done was in India. It was in India. Yeah, most of that was, was was more more focused there. Yeah, it's one of those things that I find a hard time finding resources for. Maybe that's just in the DC area. Um, but uh, learn like you. It's it feel like it's pranayama is one of those things you actually have to learn from a human being. Oh, right? Yeah. You can't like you can't just read about it in a book and do it. Like you actually have to have like that that teacher who's had years and years of experience teach it to you. That's right. right. I'm 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 looking at starting a pranayama and meditation series in DC. Mm. Um, at some point early next year by the spring, like an eight week an eight week series for intermediate and advanced pranayama. That would be cool. That'd so, be excellent. Yeah. Okay. okay. Sign me up. Sign you up. <laughs> Done. Um, uh, any kind of uh, so any kind of like any kind of books, websites that you frequent? Is there like you know, for example, they say that um, like Gandhi, you know, read the Gita every day of his life. Anything that you have that sort of like one of your bulwarks that you that you take with you everywhere you go or that you frequently refer to. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I've got a few books that that I'll go back to for for grounding. Um, I, lo- I love the Four Agreements. I just, I just love that book. It's such a simple, easy kind Tell of us about small book. Um, the Four Agreements. Mm-hmm. The uh, the book is 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 a way to live your life, um, observing four simple agreements and kind of breaking down each of those agreements and how through your day by observing these agreements, you will be really coming into harmony uh, with with the outside world. Um, have you read it? I haven't. No, nope, oh, wow. I haven't read it. I think the last name, I don't want to say the last name wrong on the author, um, but yeah, just look up the four agreements. Yeah. It's there. It's a good book. Um, I often refer to the to Light on Life mm-hmm. by BKS Iyengar. Yeah. Um, I think he really, really puts it down very clearly um, just some of like how yoga intersects with modern day mm-hmm. culture. Um, 
Yeah, I love quotes. I read a lot of quotes. Mm-hmm. I like I like reading quotes. I've been compiling a list of quotes since I was in seventh grade. That's got to be really. Least, like you be. have books of quotes at home. Yeah, I mean, like when I come across a great, and not, I don't have books of quotes anymore. I've typed everything up into this Word document, and now I just keep like wow. I've been updating this Word document since probably college. So and like it's this over is over like 150, 200 pages of quotes. This is like the Hawa Sutras. It's like, yeah, but they're not my quotes. They're quotes <laughs> right, that I've they're right. quotes that I've read that I'm just well, like. Well, Pots wow, and Jolly, they weren't his quotes either. That's they were just true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. No, I've got I've got this huge sheet of quotes, and I've memorized like I, I've memorized a lot of them, and you know, forgotten as many as I've memorized, and you know, it's 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 really nice to have these these nuggets and reminders um, Mm -hmm. of what's really important. Um, Yeah. Cool. Um, Anything else you want to leave us with? Any other kind of special projects you got going on? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I mean like everything, but really anything specific. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, I think for those uh, that are on the path and are starting to explore or, have been exploring or even teaching yoga, I think the one question that we have to keep asking ourselves today is where does yoga and how does yoga intersect with social justice? Um, when we really get into yamas and niyamas and we start understanding the, the, the values of nonviolence, um, satya, which is truth, uh, Asteya, which is non-stealing, you know, there's, there's a lot we can apply to where we are today. And it kind of makes me sad to have seen how yoga has become such an industry and how so many businesses and people are profiting off of what was meant to be beyond money. Mm -hmm. So the way capitalism has really um, shaped our understanding of yoga today is when I think all of us have a responsibility to think really deeply about um, our consumption, our consumerism, and how that impacts the environment, how it impacts people's lives, uh, how it impacts our self-esteem even as humans, right? Um, psychologically. So we really need to take a moment in time and really consider what would it really mean to be uh, a culture that's been influenced by yogic principles I often think to myself, wow, if yoga really took root in the U.S., like we would not be buying all these designer brand clothes and but we'd actually have been all spinning our own cotton right? and making our own clothes. And, you know, we went in a totally different direction for whatever reason. And I think part of the responsibility falls on the teachers, to be honest, Chris. I mean, I think I think teachers we have such a responsibility to transmit the authentic history of yoga. Yeah. And I think unfortunately so many people have been trained in very short amounts of time 
without um, a full awareness of what it what it really means. And so, in that process, we have you know capitalism, and we're all driven by basic needs and and uh, having to like have a business and having to like pay rent and having to make it in the world and compete with five thousand other yoga instructors to. Mm-hmm to fill your classes and fill your retreats and to like your post on Instagram. Right. So having a lot of compassion for all of that and having compassion for all of us, myself included, I think it's really the question of our time right now as it relates to the world of yoga in the Mm -hmm. country and the world is how do the yamas and niyamas, like how will they really influence the next 50 years of yoga? And what does that look like? Like how can we revolutionarily, re-describe what it means to be a yogi. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see that happen in this country. Yeah. Yeah, I would too, man. I think that's a great thing. That's a great note to end on. Um, You know, one thing's for sure, long after we're dead, yoga's going to be around. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It was great to have you on the show today, Hawa. That was my pleasure. I really appreciated being here. Absolutely. Um, all right. You've been listening to the DC yoga podcast, uh, with Chris Parkinson and my guest today was Hawa. Uh, if you like what you hear, please give us a uh, like on, uh, SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. Uh, if you have any questions for me, you can be reached at DC yoga podcast at gmail.com and, uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.